and welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Sharon Shu, And I'm Karis Ellison. Today we're discussing the unpleasantness at the Bologna Club. This is going to be the first of three episodes discussing this book, in which Whimsy is embroiled in yet another inheritance plot after an unpleasant event at his club on Armistice Day. Before we get started, Sharon, Mm -hmm. this is our first episode of 2020, Ah! so (laughs) welcome to the new decade. No, (laughs) I'm not ready. (laughs) But before we leave the holiday season behind, Sharon, I have an important question for you. Okay. Which is, where did I rank on the Christmas card wall? Oh, listeners, the background for this (laughs) is that... I have a few friends who send kind of like more jokey holiday cards. And Karis, a few years ago, when she was visiting me, saw one and named that person as her nemesis. (laughs) (laughs) And I will say it was probably a tie between you and that person this year. Oh, no. But I really liked yours. (laughs) Thank you. I have to explain to people every year. I'm just like, no, you don't understand. The main reason I do Christmas cards is so that I could win Sharon's wall. Oh man, I don't. I really want to like flash forward now to fifty years from this Christmas to see like what outlandish things you're gonna to have to come up with to keep topping each other. And I don't think the other person even knows that they're my nemesis. No, no, they're entirely unaware. They have no idea. This is a one-sided rivalry. But having having gotten that very important question out of the way, the most important question, we just that that's the whole reason we're having three episodes. Is to- Yes, was to make room for that. But yes, I let's let's talk about some sayers. Our first discussion about sayers in 2020. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that we have another mystery revolving around a will Mm -hmm. and sort of like the complications of an inheritance. So hot on the heels of a natural death. Mm -hmm. It's like, hmm. Why did Sayers return to that well so quickly? And I, I think there's a way in which the books pair nicely in that regard. But we're also getting a lot of new themes, right? If a natural death was about spinsters and extraneous women, I think Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club is really about kind of the aftermath of World War One for all of these um, returning soldiers. And it's not coincidence that the early action of the book is set at a, a like a gentleman's club, right? A gentleman's club in like the traditional sense of um, a, <laughs> yes. a place where gentlemen gather to smoke cigars and talk about current events. And Not so forth. a cabaret. And no, 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 no. And it's specifically a club for like veterans, mm-hmm. the Bologna Club, which is named after, I believe, the Roman goddess of war. So... Karis, would you mind giving our listeners like a brief sketch on scene setting of what the mystery is and the the major players? Yeah. Uh, So this book opens on Armistice Day morning with Whimsy at the Malona Club. And uh, it's really kind of a fun opening chapter. You know, it bounces Mm -hmm. around. He's there's a lot of activity because it's Armistice Days. There's lots of people around. He's you know, chatting to different characters the way that Sayers does so well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see our old friend, Mr. or sorry, Colonel Marchbanks. Yes, our old friend, Colonel Marchbanks. And 
we're introduced to the idea of General Fintiman, who is this extremely elderly gentleman who has very regular habits and is famous for coming to the Bologna Club every day, sitting down in a specific armchair with the paper and staying there for the entire day. Like that, like that's his entire routine is to come to the Bologna Club, sit in the chair, and he's just a fixture. Mm-hmm. And General Fintiman has two grandsons, and one of them is George Fintiman, who has a nervous temperament. He was gassed badly during the war, so like he has issues with his lungs. He has issues with PTSD, things that we've discussed a little bit with regard to Peter, but seem to be quite severe and without an outlet for George. George's life is in an unhappy place. So we're introduced to George Fintiman and we have this short first chapter with all this activity in it. And our friend Colonel Marchbanks goes over to speak to General Fintiman, who's there in his chair. And he goes all quiet and he like comes over and asks Whimsy to come have a look. And the general is dead. Uh, This causes quite a stir because his grandson, George Fintiman, has just a complete breakdown and like breaks down into hysterical laughter. Mm -hmm. A few days later, like after this unpleasantness, our other dear friend, Mr. Murbles, comes to see Peter and explains that there is a complicated question about inheritance that's tied to General Fintiman's death which is that General Fintiman, this is where things get convoluted, so bear with us, (laughs) listeners. General Fintiman had an estranged sister. He was from a poor but very proud family, and his sister upset the family by running off and marrying someone who was in trade. So like a perfectly nice man with a good business but someone who wasn't of their social class. The family disowned her and like had nothing to do with her. The upper class family got very poor indeed, and the estranged sister became Lady Dormer because her husband, who was in trade at some point, was given a knighthood and became a very wealthy woman indeed. She had no children, but she had a like a ward, and her... Her will was that if her brother predeceased her, all of her money, like all of her money except for like a small amount, would go Mm -hmm. to the ward. Mm -hmm. And then if her brother survived her, a smaller amount of money, like a still quite reasonable amount. Yeah. But a smaller amount of money would go to Andorland, her ward, and the significant amount of money would go to, would have gone to General Fintiman. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that... The night before they discover General Fintiman's body, Lady Dorland was dying of an illness. And the general had actually been called to see her. They had reconciled on her deathbed. And then he had left. She died at some point in the early hours. And he died at some unknown time. Right. So... Murbles is asking Peter to see if he could suss out like when exactly the general died because all of a sudden this enormous inheritance is kind of in question. Does all the money go to Anne Dorland 
or does all of this money go to the executor of the general's will, which is Robert Finneman, the older of the two grandsons. Mm -hmm. And I guess like maybe one other thing to mention is that the general had also had a will that I think Robert, Robert was aware that he'd be the executor and that Mm -hmm. he in the general's will was getting a smaller amount than his brother George would have Mm -hmm. because George was married and the general was like, he needs something to live on and to support his wife, but that they had both decided not to tell George about that inheritance because they were hoping, you know, he would like kind of get himself together if he didn't know that he could like depend on that. So there's like sort of two wills. Right. And the thing about the general's will is that it leaves the greater bulk of his known money to Mm -hmm. George, but that any money not specifically accounted for would go to Robert as the executor, which if the Fentimans were to inherit Lady Dormer's fortune, that would be money that was unaccounted for and it would all go to Robert as the executor. Yeah, a significant amount of unaccounted for money. (laughs) Oh, to have so much unaccounted for money. (laughs) Uh, Don't go murdering your relatives. I (laughs) would never. I don't think any of my relatives have that much unaccounted (laughs) for money. Well, and if they do, they're certainly not going to tell you now. (laughs) But yeah, so like having gone into all those convoluted details, Mm -hmm. which as I was saying, and I'm just like, oh, this sounds so boring when I'm saying it. But Sayers makes it (laughs) Sayers makes it pretty interesting. Yeah, because she conveys all that information with so much personality. We're getting fed all of that information through dialogue and um, everything is kind of like colored with people's personalities mm-hmm. and it's it's much more lively than the summary that I just gave <laughs> but Peter is called in by Mr. Murbles because Mr. Murbles is representing the Fentiman brothers kind of jointly mm-hmm. and Murbles comes privately to Peter and asks him to do what he can to determine the exact time of the general's death because that is what is that's the deciding factor it's known exactly when lady dormer died but no one saw general fentiman the night or morning before they found the body yeah everyone was just like well he was in the chair he was in the chair all day and then we saw no reason to move him <laughs> he's always in the chair so everyone's just like well but when when exactly did he pass away and peter does tell Murbles, you know he's like if you can get the interested parties to just do a, a settlement you know like chop mm-hmm. up the money some kind of way that seems equal then i would advise that you do that so peter early on is already you know, it, it comes out a little bit later that he is already suspecting that something fishy happened with the body, at least. It's interesting because we've been talking about the sort of adherence to truth that he has and how in other books, sometimes he takes on a case and then later on has a moment of saying, oh, I don't know if I want to keep pursuing this. And so it's interesting to me that before he even takes the case, he says to Marbles, like, are you sure that you want me to go digging? Because once I start, I'm not going to be able to stop. I love the way he describes it to Murbles. Look here, sir. When you were a boy, did you ever go about poking sticks and things into peaceful, mysterious-looking ponds just to see what's at the bottom? Mm-hmm. And Mr. Murbles, <laughs> oh, dear Mr. Murbles is like, 
frequently. I was extremely fond of natural history and had quite a remarkable collection, if I may say so at this distance of time, of pond fauna. (laughs) (laughs) And Peter's like, that's not the point. The point is, did you ever stir up like mud and icky things? Did you ever happen to stir up a deuce of a stink in the course of Mm -hmm. your researches? And it is, I mean, Murbles is saying, you know, we could always fall back on a settlement, right? Because I think the Victorian inheritance plot is very much hanging over the background of this book. Like in in Bleak House, the plot of Bleak House really revolves around the Jarndyce v. Jarndyce case, which is all about trying to settle or trying to like litigate a will. And then eventually the entire inheritance is just eaten up with the court costs and the costs of litigation. So nobody gets anything. So Peter's like, yeah, the, the estate might vanish in costs if the parties do litigate. Mm-hmm. And Mirables is like, yeah, I'm sure they'll, they'll want to avoid it. But in the meantime, please do some looking into. <laughs> yeah, I do think it's really interesting that after we've just had a natural death where Peter insisted mm-hmm. on poking around and it resulted in multiple deaths and attempted to murders mm-hmm. and the defamation of character of an an innocent <laughs> sweet old man that Murbles comes to him with this kind of juicy question and Peter is just like okay so if I do this I'm gonna find something out and that's the answer you're going to get mm-hmm. are you going to be satisfied with whatever evidence I give you and Murbles just like well yes yes of course and then Peter is just like okay are you sure because it may be a big stinky mess Mm -hmm. when he's talking specifically about like stirring up the pond scum i feel like that is definitely a reference to unnatural death because his whole investigative strategy was to stir things up yeah and it had very dire consequences it worked (laughs) but at what cost yeah well and in a certain way i think this case at least the case of like the will really rhymes with that one, right? I mean, in Unnatural mm-hmm. Death, there is no will, and that's kind of the problem. But here we also have a very elderly woman who was estranged from her family and a young woman who stands to gain from her death. And I think there has to be a way in which, you know, if you are a reader of Sayers and you've been following along and all the in all the mysteries as they've been published, like that would sort of send up a, a flare in your brain, right? Of like, oh, the book last year. <laughs> also, <laughs> like, I, I don't know if we're being set up to sort of suspect Anne Dorland from the get go. I mean, we don't, it takes a long time for us to meet her in the book. We're not actually even going to get to her in this episode because she doesn't show up until like the latter half. But I don't know. It's it's really interesting to me that we're kind of recurring back to this. I don't I keep calling the inheritance plot like a very Victorian trope, but I, I think it kind of is. And in some ways I feel like this book, you know, I was going through and trying to find little bits of interesting things to say about like the composition or like the the form of it. And I I feel on the one hand that it's like very conventional formally. Mm-hmm. You don't get all of like the inventiveness of of say whose body. But then at the same time I'm like, well, but Sayers was like essentially helping invent the genre of the cozy mystery. So maybe yeah. maybe I find it very <laughs> conventional, but you know, she's just like really settling into a genre. So so I don't know. But yeah, there there doesn't seem to be a ton to say about like how the book is put together other than the chapter titles are all chess moves. Oh, are they? 
Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Oh, sorry. They're not. They're not chess moves. They're um, they're like card card moves, I guess. Oh, like card playing. Lord Peter leads a club. The queen is out. I think like hearts before diamonds, something like that. Hearts count more than diamonds. Oh, I guess not all of them. There's one that's the Curse of Scotland, but huh? Hey, that that never registered with me. <laughs> yeah, I'm noticing that here live for the first time. <laughs> You have to go to more clubs and play more cards. I'm terrible at cards. I don't even know how to play hearts. Yeah. Sorry, I think I took us off on a tangent. No, I think that that's fascinating and makes a lot of sense. But I do think, obviously, I'm not the expert on modernism um, on this podcast, but it it definitely feels like there's not as much experimentation in that sense. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like Sayers is really digging into the characters more than maybe in the last couple of books. That's interesting because I feel like we get so little of Peter as a character in this book. Yeah. But say more about that. Yeah, not so much Peter. Mm -hmm. Although I think that we do get little bits of Peter reacting to things, but we don't get as much internal Peter as we did in some of the previous books. But I'm thinking more in terms of the other characters, you know, like we have George mm. Fintiman and his wife, Sheila, yeah. and they're both drawn, like they're very thorough character portraits mm-hmm. and they're drawn very carefully. And like, it would be so easy for them to be caricatures, Yeah, but Sayers draws them with a lot of sympathy and a lot of nuance to kind of show yeah. that, you know, these are people, they maybe aren't. Uh, showing their best sides at the moment. George certainly isn't. (laughs) No, like they are not really shown to best advantage. Mm -hmm. And it's not what you would call a flattering portrait. But it does kind of show, it's just like these are people who have been pushed. Kind of to the brink. Yeah, Yeah, just like to the very edge of what they can handle. They have been doing their best, but they are unraveling. I think, I think you're really right in that even even if Sayers isn't really using the the formal experimentation that we associate with modernism, like the thematically and through characterization, this book is very, very concerned with what happens after a war, right? What happens after the Great War? And I think in, in that sense does pick up on a lot of the themes that other modernists were thinking about. So going way back to, I forget which episode we talked about, like Paul Fussell and his book, The Great War and Modern Memory, about how partially modernism arises, like modernism as a literary movement arises from the breakdown of like a a language adequate to talk about the horrors of Mm -hmm. the war. And I think here we see a lot of how war affects people's relationships, right? So George being gassed and coming back and kind of not being able to hold down a job because of his nerves and how that affects his marriage and relationships between men and women as women are entering the workforce. And then also there's like so much, I think, intergenerational conflict that's, it's all talked about in like very polite language, but you definitely, like in all the scenes at the Bologna Club, you get this sense that the young men who were part of World War One feel very misunderstood, I think, by, by the old guard, by mm-hmm. the old soldiers who served in previous wars. And there's almost this sense of like resentment, right? Of like these old men 
sent us into war, told us it would be glorious, and now have completely just no understanding of what we endured, what our lives are like now. And so there's there's really, I think, a big chasm that Sayers is pointing out between kind of the older generation and this younger one. Yeah, I think that's really true. And also something that she highlights is how it affected different temperaments differently. Mm-hmm. Like Robert Fintiman, the older brother, he almost fits in with the old guard, right? He went to war yeah. and had a good time. <laughs> you know, he, he's like a, mm-hmm. a, a brash, loud, naturally suited to the military kind of person. Mm-hmm. Career military suits him right down to the ground. Yeah. He's the same generation as his brother, but he doesn't understand why his brother has so many issues. Yeah. Murbles even says early on to Peter, poor George inherited a weekly strain from his grandmother, I'm afraid, which is a very <laughs> Murblesy thing to say. Of like, <laughs> oh, he's just, you know, it's so unfortunate that the female has passed down mm. this weakness. Um, but Peter immediately responds, well, he's nervous, said Whimsy, who knew better than the old solicitor the kind of mental and physical strain George Fentiman had undergone. The war pressed hardly upon imaginative men in responsible positions. Mm-hmm. So it's the narrative is really clear that this isn't this isn't like a character flaw of George's or even of Peter's because we know that Peter was an imaginative man in a responsible position and how difficult it was for him. Mm-hmm. Whereas Robert Fendiman just has no imagination. <laughs> none. <laughs> well, none whatsoever. Well, we'll find out. He has he has a little bit, but yeah, I guess a little bit. But I don't know. I like creativity is not the same as imagination. That's true. That's true. He's maybe just reactive, right? Everything he does in this book is sort of like reactionary. Yeah. Which makes mm. sense. Because I feel like when, especially when Sayers is talking about like the imaginative personality, that's someone who is imagining outcomes, you know, anticipating outcomes. Mm-hmm. And the consequences, yeah. Like as someone with anxiety, I feel that that can sometimes be so much worse. You know, like, in general, the thing that I imagine and anticipate is much, much worse than whatever actual reality there is to react to. Mm -hmm. And so if I weren't so imaginative and were just reacting to things as they happen, I think often I would be so much less stressed. Did you ever read the last book in the Anne of Green Gables series, Rilla of Ingleside? You know, I never did. Oh. It's really good. It's one of those things that I have been meaning to get to for mm-hmm. so long, but reading the Anne books as a preteen, I mm-hmm. got, I, I wasn't very interested in Anne as like a wife and mother. And so like I burned out on the series and then didn't yeah. get to that one. And people were just like, yeah. oh no, you should read it. It's, it's different from all the other ones. It's kind of by itself. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll get to it sometime. And it, that I have not done that yet (laughs) (laughs) well I'm not gonna assign you more homework I still haven't finished my first assignment that's all right I haven't even started mine just endless extensions (laughs) but yeah so the the final book in the series it's it's about Anne's daughter and it's set during World War One and it's about her kind of watching all the boys of her generation and her family go off to war but it's relevant here because one of her brothers Walter is you know he's the poet of the family he's the sensitive soul and he's the one who he's terrified of enlisting because he's so imaginative, because he keeps imagining 
kind of like all the horrible things that he's going to have to bear witness to Mm -hmm. and be part of. And then much later on, one of the other brothers of the family says to Rilla, oh yeah, Walter, you know, once he got to the front, he was braver than all of us. Like the problem wasn't, you know, he wasn't a coward. It was just that his imagination was so intense that he was like pre-living everything and like imagining every single thing about the situation. Whereas the rest of us were, you know, sort of just dumb boys who thought we were going off on a lark. And so once, but like once Walter was faced with the reality, he was much more able to to deal with it. And I yeah. think, I think that's kind of like relevant to what you were saying about the more anxious or nervous personality, not getting worked at, but the, yeah, the difference between George and Robert, I guess, of Robert probably thought the entire war was a lark the whole time he was there. <laughs> Whereas poor George had had a constitution maybe more like Peter's. And and as you were saying earlier, has now no outlet, right? He's not aristocratic. He's not, he doesn't have a bunter in his life to like buffer him from things. Yeah. And that's something that that's really shown in, in this book is what a difference it makes. Mm-hmm. You know, like Peter came home to wealth. He came home to people who could take care of him. He came home and Bunter, we don't know this yet, I guess, in the books, but Bunter kind of followed him home. Mm-hmm. And while Peter was in the depth of shell shock, Bunter was kind of running his life and taking care of him. George doesn't have that. George is poor. George has to work to support himself. George does not have the luxury of dropping everything to recover. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like George doesn't have the free time to take up a hobby to distract his mind. George George basically has nothing like other than interacting with other veterans at like the Bologna Club. George doesn't have any support structure at all. Yeah. And I, I think there's a way in which the narrative points out because it's so explicit about what Bunter did for Peter. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I think it even I'm trying to find the page. It refers to Bunter as like motherly. Oh, yes. Uh, Peter says, I have an extraordinarily faithful and intelligent man who looks after me like a mother. Mm. And he says that to George. And so there's a way in which like Bunter, Bunter's labor is very much set up as like feminized labor, as nurturing labor. Mm. And I think the thing that George resents is that his wife does not do that for him. right? Right. I mean, he's he says some really terribly misogynistic Yeah, he does. Like, no wonder a man can't get a decent job these days with these hard mouth cigarettes, smoking females all over the place, pretending they're geniuses and businesswomen. He says that Miss Dorland paints things, ugly skinny prostitutes with green bodies and no clothes on. Like, it's, he's, he's really, really angry at women. Mm -hmm. But like, it's very obvious that this comes about because he's angry that his wife in her own stress and needing to go out and work and trying to keep the family together and trying to make a living doesn't have the emotional or time capacity to then work a second shift on his feelings, right? Right. And I can't say I blame her. <laughs> Not at all. Like, out of all the people in this book, the person with the raw steel is Sheila Fintiman. Yeah. And it's not that Sheila Fintiman wants to work outside the home. It's that she has to. She doesn't have an option because George can't hold down a steady job. Plus, they kind of really seem to need two incomes to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. So she also doesn't have the luxury of free time. Right. And she also doesn't have any support structure. 
this poor unfortunate married couple mm-hmm. they both desperately need someone taking care of them and they can't take care of themselves or each other because they're so busy just like scrounging to live mm-hmm. yeah it's very i mean we've talked about class difference before but i think this is one where peter's really he's really seeing an experience that is so different from his i mean even when he goes and calls on them yeah right the the book is at pains of saying like so the fentimans live on the ground floor there's someone in the basement i think there's someone above them so peter rings once which brought up the person in the basement and then the narrative says whereas a better instructed caller would have rung twice to indicate that he wanted the ground floor so there's one bell for everybody mm-hmm. and you know the book is pointing out that like peter doesn't know how it works to call on someone who doesn't live in their own house like who shares a bell with other people because of course he wouldn't right like right well and like they don't just share a bell like they share the kitchen mm-hmm. um i think that they share the facilities they have two rooms in this house that mm-hmm. that they share with at least two other families and i think that you know like it also makes clear that peter hasn't been there before mm-hmm. peter knows them but he hasn't been to call on them no and kind of you know before he actually gets there a few pages earlier peter is deciding he's just like oh i think i'll go see the finnemans then he stops and remembers that if he arrives too early they would have a social responsibility to ask him to stay for supper and he's just like and there might not be enough to go around and that would everyone would be putting on a front but being upset and so he's just like i'm just gonna wait a little bit yeah. And it's very gentlemanly, right? It His is. concern isn't like, oh, they won't be able to feed me. It's like, I don't, I don't want to embarrass them or I don't want to worry them by taking part of their meal that they've had to scrounge about for where Peter could just go to a different club and <laughs> have a very nice meal there. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it even says that his simple and satisfactory meal, which he had at one of his numerous clubs left him in the best of tempers. So there's there's very much, I think, a pointing out that money can't buy you happiness necessarily, but it can make unhappiness very comfortable. And that there is a sense in which Peter's recovery has a lot to do with the things that his wealth, like the comforts that his wealth has brought him, right? The fact that mm-hmm. a good meal can leave you in a better temper. And so, and setting that up, directly in contrast with the ill temper of George and Sheila because of how of how little they have. Yeah. And I don't know, I was I was really noticing this go around reading like how I don't think isolated is the correct word because Peter works with Merbles to some extent in the beginning and there's also we forgot to mention like there's a doctor at the at the Bologna club when they first discover General Fenton, and so Dr. Pemberthy, who happens to be the general's personal physician and who was an army doctor, is like on the scene, and he's the person who, you know, says, like, Oh, I think he's been dead for, you know, maybe a few hours, like the rigor mortis is just passing off. So Peter has interlocutors, but he's not all the people who usually help him detect are not really around in the first part of this book so like Parker doesn't show up until about a third of the way through Mm -hmm. when Peter goes to ask him to like put you know put a police tail on somebody and even Bunter so Bunter goes and like takes all these pictures of the Bologna club but usually but like Bunter is the person that Peter sends to talk to servants and in this case Peter Peter talks to General Fentiman's manservant himself 
Peter talks to the help at the club himself. So I feel like there's a way in which this book is really putting Peter right up next to classes of people that he normally would not, that he would normally be buffered from, I suppose, or that he normally would assume, like wouldn't even tell him anything. So he would, he would send Bunter, he'd send Charles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It has Peter doing a little bit more of his own work, I guess. (laughs) Which that reminds me of a little thing that I noticed. Yeah. It's right at the end of chapter three, I think where Peter's decided to take on the case after talking to Merbles. And, oh, yeah, so, like, Merbles leaves after Whimsy has agreed to take on the case. Uh, so Peter rings the bell for Bunter. He's like, a new notebook, please, Bunter. Headed Fintiman and be ready to come around with me to the Bologna Club tomorrow, complete with camera and the rest of the outfit. Which I thought was interesting, because I think that this is just about our only glimpse of how Peter organizes his cases. Mm-hmm. which is by having Bunter do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In general, we just kind of see him wandering around asking questions and thinking things, but we don't see him, you know, taking notes or or mm-hmm. things like that. But it's just like he does, apparently, like, and I think uh, later on there's a mention of him writing down notes in a notebook. But mm-hmm. that's not something that's highlighted very much at all, I think, in any of the books. But it's just like, yeah. oh, yes, he does neatly record all these things or have Bunter do it. <laughs> do it. And I just have this vision of like Peter with like just having all these like pieces of paper where he's written things down and Bunter having to like catalog them. It's like that um the, you know academic twitter a few years ago there was that hashtag that was like thanks for the typing and it, it's it was pointing out how many um old male academics and I guess maybe new male academics in their books are like and thank you to my wife for the typing and everyone's like "Mm." (laughs) so you mean like organizing your research maybe conducting your research maybe writing the dissertation for you Mm -hmm. so thanks Bunter for the typing (laughs) I have another I have a little another little note on the next page oh is it when he's asking Bunter about the suit yes yeah. <laughs> and then he's just like, are you sure you removed all the newness? I hate new clothes. I'm just... What I wrote was, oh my god, seriously, Peter? <laughs> um, and then Bunter says, positive, my lord. I assure your lordship the garments have every appearance of being several months old. <laughs> so, like, how does Bunter remove the newness? But I'm sure. I'm sure it's by, like, strategic washing. Oh, gosh. Which is so much more laborious than if... You know, Bunter just put on his lordship suit every now and then and, like, <laughs> moved around it. That is a clue, though. Mm-hmm. Don't you think? I don't know. I feel like that, that's, if it is a clue, it's very subtle. I, I like, I was reading it more, I'm just like, ah, oh, yes, an, an example of, like, how ridiculously rich and carefree Peter is. And just like, mm, <laughs> I have new clothes, but I don't want them to look new. So, Bunter, yeah. It's like the Queen, Queen Elizabeth's dresser I guess is what they call her like the person who's in charge of her majesty's clothes put out a book lately where she's like oh yes you know it's very handy that her majesty and I have like the same shoe size because I wear in all her shoes before I I break all I break in all her (laughs) shoes before she wears them (laughs) so that sounds so nice yeah Peter and the queen are the same (laughs) (laughs) identical Mm mm-hmm What else did we want to talk about? 
I'm just kind of flipping through my notes. When Peter goes with Pinberthy into the library, mm-hmm. and like there's a description of the library, and, it, and like I think we have to save that until the very end. But I'm just like, ooh, a hint. Yeah, I do love that the book is always like nobody was ever in the library. Never. Like, you know, these are these are not people who who sit around and like read books. Right. <laughs> I think we can mention that. One thing Peter says to Pemberthy in that conversation in the library is that he was like, we we both noticed that the body was was stiff with rigor mortis, but the knee, his legs, his left leg swung free. Peter's saying to Pemberthy, like, we both know that somebody moved the body in a way that like, I don't know if it's like broke the kneecap, but Mm. forced the joint. Yes, forced the joint. So so that's kind of hanging in the air so the question is like who did that and that's kind of like the thing that gave peter pause he's just like i know that something was going on Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i don't know what it was but if i dig into this who knows yeah and then the other sort of clue i mean there really are like a bunch of clues that are laid out very early which i which i love this is like a very airtight case but one thing that peter says to robert fentiman is that the other the other thing, like he doesn't mention the kneecap, but he says something struck me as very odd about the body. And then Robert says, well, you know, well, what is it? And then <laughs> the narrative says, work it out for yourself, my dear Watson, said his lordship, grinning like a dog. You have all the data. Work it out for yourself and let me know the answer. And I won't give away like what that object is, but it's... Mm-hmm. I do I do kind of love it when Sayers like in playing fair has laid out kind of everything we need to know but then like very explicitly is like yes there's something that you as the reader should have picked up which I never yeah. do until you know like after I've read the whole book <laughs> <laughs> but yes so there just there's some there's some clues scattered about in the first third of this book that all is not quite as it seems yes I like like you say I like the way that Sayers will show us what Peter is looking at and then be like, and now Peter knows something. And you're just like, what? What does he know? Mm-hmm. Well, you saw the same things he saw. You should figure it out. It's like, but I... Right. And what? <laughs> but I can't. The thing is, is that Sayers does follow the rules, as we've talked mm-hmm. about many times before. It's not like she said, Peter looked over there and he saw something. And you'll find out what it is later. You know, it's like, right. he saw this and this and this and this. And now, now he knows something. Yes. <laughs> it's like we get the specifics mm-hmm. and then are left to draw our own conclusions. Yeah. There's a bit in like Five Red Herrings, right? Where after he looks at the scene, he also remarks to somebody like something is missing. And then there's a footnote that's like the astute reader will know what it is. Or so, like it's it's very yeah. explicit there that like mm, Peter, Peter knows a thing. <laughs> yeah. And then like, do you ever feel like a little burst of shame? You're just like, I guess I'm not an astute reader. I literally never remember what it is in, in this in unpleasantness at the Bologna Club. At least when I get to that point, I'm always like, "Oh right, like that's now on reread." I remember the thing, but literally with five red herrings, I always get to that bit, and I'm like, "Ah, like what is it?" No, I'm not an astute reader. Well, what's the thing? Yeah, <laughs> I never figure out what it is. Before. Like, to be fair, in my own defense. I don't try very hard because mm-hmm. I am not the type of mystery reader who is trying to solve the mystery. Yeah. Like, I'm not trying to beat 
the book to the conclusion because I Mm -hmm. know that I'm going to be told. Exactly. Yeah, like I read mysteries because I like character portraits in formulaic settings. (laughs) Like like to sum up, like that's why I can watch Law and Order (laughs) for so long before getting tired of it because I love things that have like a formulaic structure. I love genre things, especially things that have like that follow genre rules and conventions while still kind of messing around within that structure. <laughs> so you loved <laughs> Knives Out when you saw it, right? <laughs> I enjoyed Knives Out so much, and I really need to go watch it again mm-hmm. to pick up all the little things. Just a brief side note that one of our one of our Twitter followers responded to you know our answer to a question in the, the listener Q and A where we were really struggling to come up with books that, you know, sort of replicate the, the golden age mystery plot without the massive amounts of sexism and racism and classism. A Twitter listener pointed out that Knives Out as a movie does that really well. Yes. And so listeners, if you have not seen Knives Out, definitely consider running out to catch it in theaters before it's gone. And if you do miss it in theaters, make sure you get it on DVD or something. It's, it's delightful. Except for that one thing that happens at the very end um, that I can't describe because of spoilers. I think I know the thing you're talking about. But offset by Chris Evans in many good sweaters. Such good sweaters. Yeah. Love maybe sweaters. Maybe telling a little bit too much about myself, but ooh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I'm right there with you. <laughs> We're all in this boat together. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> Oh, Captain, my Captain. No, and I have looked at the internet a little bit, and we are not alone in this boat. That's true. It's a very crowded boat. That's true. That's true. The boat is overflowing. <laughs> right. Um. Before, before going, uh, where were we? <laughs> I don't know. Now all I can think about is Chris Evans and sweaters. <laughs> what have you done? You've completely I'm sorry, derailed. I'm sorry. It's distracting you. Oh, right. Yeah. Not being the kind of reader who like is trying to figure everything out. Oh, um, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. We might need to have our friend Angela on when we talk about five pairings because <laughs> I'm much more of your school of thought of I'll feel really good about myself if I figured something out before right. the book tells me, but I don't fuss about it. Yeah. I'm not trying to because I'm just like the book's going to tell me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it'll be fun on reread. My goal is not to be smarter than the author. My goal is to admire how smart the author is. Mm-hmm. A very worthy goal. Yes. And that is a very attainable goal for me as a reader. <laughs> so I get to enjoy mysteries without also experiencing repeated blows to my self-esteem. <laughs> but... Our friend Angela is like the whole point of reading mysteries is to like see if you're smarter or like as smart as the detective. Um, so she really loves five red herrings for that reason. <laughs> yes, she enjoys five red herrings. She enjoys the timetables. And it's, I'm going to tell an anecdote about Angela. And it involves this like not I'm going to give this without context. Okay. Uh, to avoid it being a spoiler. But at some point in one of the mystery novels of Dorothy L. Sayers, there's a coded letter. Mm-hmm. And because Sayers is Sayers, she spends several paragraphs explaining how the code works and kind of like, you know, like providing all the things needed to solve the code. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, being the type of reader that I am, go, that's interesting. And just kept reading because I knew that it was going to be decoded for me. Like very soon. Yeah. So I just happily read on 
sure that I was going to know everything relevant soon, within a few pages. Whereas our friend Angela stopped reading the book, went and got several <laughs> sheets of paper, and then spent a while <laughs> decoding the letter herself <laughs> before moving on. I was just like, why? It was decoded on the next page. She's just like, Be- because I could? Why yeah. wouldn't I? Because I wanted to know? <laughs> She's like, because I wanted to do it. <laughs> It would not have ever occurred to me to stop and decode. They're going to tell you what it says in a minute. Yeah. Well, if any of our wealthy relatives ever pass on in shading circumstances, we'll ask Angela to come investigate. (laughs) Can I tell you something really funny about the cover of my book? Yes, please tell me something really funny about the cover of your book. So it's another one of the paperbacks from like the the Avon series from the 60s. So. Mm -hmm same style as like the very lurid green unnatural death that I had Um, (laughs) and I'll likewise put a picture of this in the show notes and on the back there's an illustration of General Fentiman dead in the chair which is like in the style of of the other covers but on the front you actually have a photograph of uh, Sir Ian Carmichael as Lord Peter Whimsey because as the front cover is at pains to tell us the Unpleasantness <laughs> at the Bologna Club is now a masterpiece theater presentation made possible by a grant from Mobile Oil Corporation. <laughs> like, that's all on the front. <laughs> so I don't know how much Big Oil paid Avon to, like, have these tie-in covers, but I I found that very, very funny, particularly since this book was written in the period of Sayers's life when she was working at the advertising company. So I feel yeah. like she's either spinning <laughs> in her grave over this or like chuckling down at us that <laughs> the petroleum companies uh, really got into the detective game. <laughs> it's like, look, we care about things like the arts. Yeah. We're not, yeah. We're not horrible. Mm-hmm. We, we support great literature. Anyway. <clears throat> we may have exhausted what we have to talk about for this early third. Yeah. I have something that's like not directly related to the book, but a little tidbit to throw in. Mm-hmm. So in our first introductory episode, we both said that we thought that Gaudy Knight was our first Sayers. Yeah. But I couldn't really remember because it was a very long time ago. But I picked up this copy of Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club. And I found in it something that I've apparently been using as a bookmark all these years. Uh-huh. Which is a little postcard note. And it is from someone from Readerville Days. I think it's from Kat Lonergan. And I think that she must have sent me this copy of Unpleasantness of the Bologna Club before we read Gaudy Night for Readerville's Young Adult Reading Group. Wow. So I can't remember if maybe I read this one first. So it might have been that Unpleasantness was my first Sayers. Or maybe it was just that I owned it first and then I, but I read Gaudy Night first. So I don't know. But I am like holding this book going like, someone from Readerville sent this to me when I was a teenager and here I am still holding it <laughs> and doing a podcast about it. I just, yeah, and I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us for this first episode on the unpleasantness at the Bologna Club. We'll be back in two weeks to talk more about the mystery and some 
new characters that we'll be introduced to in the next third of the novel. And if you're following along, we'll probably discuss up to the end of chapter 16 for next time is the plan. So you can follow along at home. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at WhimsyPod. That's Whimsy, W-I-M-S-E-Y. And you can find transcripts and show notes of our episodes on our website at asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd love for you to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. And we also hope that you'll tell all your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. Join us next time for more Talking Piffle. Mm-hmm.